Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Politics with Bloodshed, the Black Panthers. They say the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, not always. We already pointed out that in the 19th century, the Republican Party were seen as progressives who might defend the black minority in the United States against white racism, so that has hardly stayed the same. Much more recently, in the 1960s, white conservatives, including that famous Republican Ronald Reagan, no less, were in favor of gun control. Hard to believe until you realize that the people carrying the guns were black. They were the Black Panthers whose radical politics, headline-grabbing initiatives, and killer fashion sense made them perhaps the most iconic group of radicals in American history. Based at first in Oakland, they came to national prominence through their campaign to police the police, standing in the street carrying unconcealed firearms to intimidate cops who carried out arrests or traffic stops. The California legislature responded by banning the carrying of guns in public, which elicited a further public relations coup by the Panthers. 30 of them showed up at the Sacramento legislature when the bill was being debated, and 20 of them were toting guns. The two founders of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, as the organization was originally known, were Bobby Seale and Huey P. Newton. They were far from surprised at the reaction of the state government. They realized, as Newton put it later, that when you use the reigning authority's own laws against it, the power structure would simply change the laws. Even without the right to display guns in public, violence continued to be central to the story of the Panthers. There were numerous open gun battles between the party and police forces. In the aftermath of one of these, another Panther leader, Eldridge Cleaver, had to flee the country in 1968. Huey P. Newton himself was jailed for involvement in the killing of a policeman, and the FBI murdered Chicago Panther and community organizer Fred Hampton in his sleep. This was war, and as Newton himself said, politics is war without bloodshed, war is politics with bloodshed. Newton and Seale met in 1962 at a protest against the American blockade of Cuba. In an account of his life with the Panthers, Seale speaks of how impressed he was by Newton, a philosophical theoretician, who would do things like clinching an argument by pulling out a copy of E. Franklin Fraser's Black Bourgeoisie. It was Seale who introduced Newton to something that was arguably even more dangerous than guns, the works of Franz Fanon, especially The Wretched of the Earth, which Seale had already read six times. Along with Fanon, the main philosophical inspiration for the Panthers was Malcolm X. Newton spoke of carrying on his spirit, while Cleaver put the point more expansively, Malcolm prophesied the coming of the gun to the black liberation struggle, Huey P. Newton picked up the gun and pulled the trigger. Cleaver himself was a passionate devotee of X. As he explains in his searing and controversial autobiography, Soul on Ice, he had been a Nation of Islam member, but followed X when he left the group. So it was fitting that in another widely publicized early appearance by the Black Panthers, they offered an armed bodyguard to Malcolm's widow, Betty Shabazz. Another figure in the background, and one who offered a more concrete model for the Panthers' activities, was Robert F. Williams. As president of a South Carolina chapter of the NAACP, he set up a rifle club to defend black people from the Ku Klux Klan. After a trial which acquitted two white men of attacking black women, he fulminated, we must be willing to kill if necessary, 
If it's necessary to stop lynching with lynching, then we must be willing to resort to that method. These remarks got him kicked out of the NAACP, and then he had to flee to Cuba after being charged with kidnapping. Cleaver identified Williams, along with ex W.E.B. Du Bois, Marcus Garvey, and Paul Robeson, as true radicals who were persecuted by the authorities. All were either killed or chased into exile, in stark contrast to Martin Luther King Jr., who was given a Nobel Peace Prize. We might deem that pretty harsh, though it is worth noting that Cleaver would have written this before King was assassinated. Still, it is typical of the generally dismissive attitude of the Panthers towards less militant black activists. When Newton first met Seal, he used arguments borrowed from X to talk Seal out of supporting the NAACP. Newton distinguished between the endorsed spokesmen of the black community, meaning those who were accepted by the white establishment, and implacables like himself. Reflecting on King's sobering visit to the scene of the Watts riots, which, as we saw, raised questions about the efficacy of his civil rights campaign, Newton asked, what good was nonviolence when the police were determined to rule by force? Many were inclined to agree. One man who joined up with the Panthers told the New York Times, as far as I'm concerned, it's beautiful that we finally got an organization that don't walk around singing. I'm not for all this talking stuff. For the Panthers, picking up the gun was not just a matter of posturing or getting attention. Newton observed that black representatives are rarely taken seriously, since their community has neither land nor economic power. By arming themselves, they could level the playing field by posing a credible threat to those who did have land and wealth. Now, he wrote, we will negotiate as equals. There will be a balance between the people who are economically powerful and the people who are potentially economically destructive. Similarly, Fred Hampton called the gun a basic tool of liberation because only with the power of the gun can black people halt the terror and brutality perpetrated against them by the armed racist power structure. The late 60s were a time when riots against police aggression and economic oppression were a constant feature of American life. In 1967 alone, there were 164 of them by the end of summer. The Panthers' approach was therefore well-suited to the historic moment. By 1970, the party had chapters all over the country, with around 5,000 members. It also published a successful newspaper, called simply The Black Panther. The organization's greatest enemy, J. Edgar Hoover, paid it a backhanded compliment when he said that the party, without question, represents the greatest threat to the internal security of the country. The Panthers' rhetoric of warfare was often justified with an idea we mentioned last time when discussing the initial rise of the Black Power movement, namely that Black people in the United States should be understood as victims of colonization. This is a view of African-American life that Aimé Césaire had already articulated, at least in a simple form, in his speech on culture and colonization at the 1956 Congress of Black Writers and Artists in Paris. In the United States itself, though, before becoming a major component of black power thinking in the late 1960s, the internal colonialism thesis, as it is often labeled, was pioneered by Harold Cruz, a somewhat surprising source. Cruz is best known for his 1967 book, The Crisis of the Negro Intellectual, a fascinating and rather cantankerous take on African-American culture and politics. While defending a certain kind of black cultural nationalism, Cruz was critical of most intellectuals and activists other than himself, including the black power advocates of the time. Controversially, he also decried what he viewed as the outsized and unhelpful influence of people from the Caribbean on black politics in America, from figures like Marcus Garvey in the earlier part of the 20th century to those in his own time, like Stokely Carmichael. Unlike Carmichael and most other prominent defenders of black nationalism that we have covered, 
Cruz was decidedly not a Pan-Africanist. Nevertheless, we can look to Cruz's 1962 essay, Revolutionary Nationalism and the Afro-American, for the first major statement of the claim that, as he put it, the Negro has a relationship to the dominant culture of the United States similar to that of colonies and semi-dependence to their particular foreign overseers. Soon after, we find a similar claim in the work of the African-American psychologist Kenneth Clark, best known for his contribution to the Brown v. Board of Education case through the study of black children's responses to questions about black dolls versus white dolls, an experiment he designed along with his wife and fellow psychologist, Mamie Clark. Kenneth's 1965 book, Dark Ghetto, is a study of Harlem, which he describes at one point as a philanthropic, economic, business, and industrial colony of New York City. This portrayal of a particular community in one northern city as a colony, which implies the characterization of other northern ghettos as equally distinct colonies unto themselves, neatly foreshadows the urban focus of the conception of domestic colonialism put forth by the Panthers. But it was not Cruz or Clark who were cited explicitly by the Panthers. Rather, they looked to Fanon and to other non-American theorists and leaders like Castro and Mao, representing African-Americans as being locked in a battle against oppressive forces similar to those confronting revolutionaries in Latin America or Asia. Cleaver drew an explicit parallel between American soldiers in Vietnam and the police in American cities and wrote, the police are the armed guardians of the social order. The blacks are the chief domestic victims of the American social order. A conflict of interest exists, therefore, between the blacks and the police. Likewise, Newton said that he saw a great similarity between military occupation of foreign lands by the American military and the occupation of our own communities by the racist police. Unsurprisingly, the Panthers threw their support behind the anti-war movement and increasingly came to see their struggle in an international light. They showed their solidarity with comrades abroad at events like the Hemispheric Conference to End the War in Vietnam, held in Montreal in 1968. The party sent Bobby Seale and David Hilliard, who met with delegates from North Vietnam. The party's newspaper, The Black Panther, put Vietnamese leader Ho Chi Minh on its cover, and the idea was even raised that the Viet Cong might release American POWs in exchange for the freedom of Panther leaders who were in prison. The party's self-conception and self-presentation was that they were part of a global war, indeed at the leading edge of that war. After all, the U.S. military machine was the basis of imperialist oppression all over the world, and that machine had to be dismantled at home. Thus, Cleaver wrote, At the juncture of foreign policy and domestic policy, the Negro Revolution becomes one with the world revolution. While Newton argued that black people are the vanguard of world revolution, because freedom elsewhere could only be secured once there was freedom in America. Such grand claims revealed that the party was not just engaging in activism on behalf of African Americans. While they were, of course, the Black Panthers, they moved beyond the bounds of traditional Black nationalism by seeking common cause with non-Black groups. One famous example was the Rainbow Coalition forged by Fred Hampton in Chicago, which brought the Panthers together with the Young Lords Party, a Puerto Rican group, and the Young Patriots Party, who represented poor whites. Newton also actively sought alliances with activists beyond the Black community, not least in the context of the anti-war movement, saying that, the young white revolutionaries are attempting to identify with the oppressed people of the colonies and against the exploiter. He found himself having to justify this kind of coalition building to radicalize black college students who considered him to be advocating a sort of deal with the devil. 
From Newton's perspective, their short-sighted attitude was comparable to the delusion suffered by the prisoners chained up in the cave allegory of Plato's Republic, a work he studied in great detail as a young man. What the components of Hanton's coalition had most clearly in common was not race, but class. Whatever rank and file Panthers might think, the party leaders, steeped in readings of Marxism, understood themselves to be battling capitalist economic oppression in the first instance, thus taking racism to be a symptom of that underlying disease. To ally with other economically disadvantaged groups thus made complete sense. Bobby Seale once put it rather baldly, we believe our fight is a class struggle and not a race struggle. Nevertheless, the Panthers did, of course, pursue this struggle first and foremost through activism in the Black community. If you search for images of the Panthers online, you'll, of course, find pictures of men wearing berets and leather jackets and brandishing shotguns, but you'll also see children tucking into toast and scrambled eggs. The Panthers mounted ambitious community outreach activities, offering free breakfast to thousands of poor children, opening free medical clinics, and founding liberation schools to train the next generation in the Panther view of the world. These projects came to the fore especially in 1968, when Newton was in jail and Cleaver had fled the country. This left Bobby Seale as the leading Panther, and his forte was community activism. Even once Newton was released from prison on a technicality in 1970, emphasis continued to be on these programs and not armed resistance. Newton spoke of the new strategy as aiming at survival pending revolution. The party's newspaper quoted that phrase as it explained the shift in policy. The overthrow of one class by another must be carried out by revolutionary violence. Until this stage is achieved, we must concentrate on the immediate needs of the people in order to build a united political force. Survival pending revolution is our immediate task. Cleaver was disappointed in the party's turn, and from exile he argued for continuing to choose the way of the gun. This was, after all, a man who had once proclaimed, I am a symbol of dissent, of rejection. Every page of American history is written in human blood, and we can't endorse it. Cleaver uttered these uncompromising words at one of the many rallies dedicated to protesting the incarceration of Newton, which made the cry, Free Huey, an unofficial motto of radical black thought in the late 60s. Once Newton was out of jail and back in charge, though, he and Cleaver fell out, most embarrassingly in a telephone conversation shown live on television in 1971. Newton's argument was that Cleaver's militancy blinded him to the needs and desires of the people in whose name they were supposed to be fighting. He presented this in a rather detached tone as an inevitable contradiction that had emerged within the movement, framing their personal dispute as a manifestation of Marxist dialectic. That was a fairly typical attitude for Newton, in that he was, of all the Panther leaders, the most unabashedly philosophical. He lamented that abstract and theoretical ideas interest me most, but they lack the rhetorical fire to hold audiences. And he admitted that he often struggled to communicate his ideas to the black masses, who did not have the leisure for such abstractions. The fact that his ideas evolved over time made it even harder to keep up. But to hear him tell it, this flexibility was not a simple matter of practical and political expediency. He was devoted to the gospel of dialectical materialism, which means examining social conditions with full objectivity and changing along with those conditions. For this reason, Newton denied being a faithful follower of Marx. Rather, he was applying a Marxist paradigm to a kind of oppression that had emerged since the days of Marx himself. For an example of how this approach worked in practice, we can consider Newton's views on homosexuality. 
In a short essay from 1971 that discusses both the women's liberation and gay liberation movements, he honestly examines his own attitudes. He admits that he has grown up with prejudice against gay people, even a desire to hit a homosexual in the mouth. But he recognizes that this is a manifestation of deep-seated fears on his own part, thus putting, as we might say, the phobia in homophobia. Having examined the question on the basis of his political principles, he comes to the conclusion that a person should have the freedom to use his body in whatever way he wants, and that homosexuals might be the most oppressed people in the society. This means that they are potential revolutionaries and thus natural allies of the Panthers. As with his overtures to the anti-war movement, Newton's political maneuvers and philosophical ideas evolved in tandem. He was also able, in a later essay, to take grim delight in attacking the less enlightened views of his erstwhile comrade, Cleaver, who had written a stunningly homophobic piece attacking James Baldwin. For Cleaver, Baldwin's shameful, fanatical, fawning, sycophantic love of the whites could be traced to his self-hatred as a gay man. In a horribly misjudged attempt at provocative humor, Cleaver commented in this context that homosexuality is a sickness just as our baby rape or wanting to become the head of General Motors. Newton caustically replied, if only this failed revolutionist had realized and accepted the fact that there is some masculinity in every female and some femininity in every male, perhaps his energies could have been put to better use. Notice how Newton here echoes ideas about gender we saw Baldwin himself expressing in our episode on him. Big fan of philosophy that he was, we can easily imagine Newton listening to episodes of this podcast with great interests. His ears would prick up as we arrive at what is perhaps his most original conceptual contribution, the idea of intercommunalism. He explicitly presented this as an evolution within his own ideology in a landmark speech delivered in 1970 at Boston College. He reflects on what it means to call yourself a nationalist, arguing that national autonomy requires economic independence, cultural determination, control of the political institutions, territorial integrity, and safety. When the party first began, it presented itself, especially through its famous 10-point program, as a nationalist party, an organization dedicated to nationhood as a solution to anti-Black oppression. As we have seen, though, the party soon came to embrace socialism as the solution to the fundamental problems facing African Americans. The party therefore sought to combine nationalism and socialism, calling this combination revolutionary nationalism. Even this, however, turned out to be insufficient, given the party's recognition that class conflict was global in scale. This led to their aforementioned embrace of internationalism, the pursuit of solidarity with other oppressed nations of the world. In yet a further step, though, Newton started to question the very idea of nation-states, at least as a basis for revolution. He explains, We found that because everything is in a constant state of transformation, because of the development of technology, because of the development of the mass media, because of the firepower of the imperialist, and because of the fact that the United States is no longer a nation, but an empire, nations could not exist, for they did not have the criteria for nationhood. With national autonomy becoming impossible under the changing conditions of a shrinking world, Newton concludes that nationalism must be abandoned. Not since Frederick Douglass's powerful thoughts on the annihilation of space and time through technological advance in his speeches on the 4th of July and Emancipation Day, which we discussed in episode 48, have we encountered so prescient an analysis of the process of globalization by an Africana thinker. Newton furthermore declares revolutionary intercommunalism 
the dialectical antithesis of the reactionary intercommunalism practiced by the United States in its attempts to dominate the world. As with every other stage of his thought, Newton remained convinced that the confrontation between revolutionary and reactionary intercommunalism could be resolved only through violent conflict. No wonder J. Edgar Hoover was worried. Under Hoover, the FBI used every trick in the book against the Panthers. In fact, they almost literally had a book of tricks. There exist numerous memos where FBI agents are instructed to encourage factionalism within the party and to incite tensions between the party and other radical organizations, for instance, by forging letters. The feds even sought to undermine the community outreach programs, as when undercover agents pretended to be concerned citizens in order to discourage stores from donating food to the breakfast scheme. They infiltrated the party with spies, arrested Panthers on trumped-up charges, and, as we already mentioned, went so far as to assassinate Hampton. Whatever your views on the Panthers, this was undoubtedly a horrendously shameful episode in the history of American law enforcement. Less clear is whether it had the desired effect. Newton, for one, thought not. He suggested optimistically that such heavy-handed policing actually increases revolutionary fervor. The people make revolution, he said, and the oppressors by their brutal actions cause resistance by the people. A similar point was made by David Hilliard. The very fact that they attacked us so openly shows that they're a very brutal people, that they are barbarous criminal elements against society. When we consider the enthusiastic and widespread demonstrations in the Free Huey movement, we may conclude that Newton and Hilliard had a point here. But in their definitive study of the party, Black Against Empire, Joshua Bloom and Waldo Martin argue that matters were more complex. Oppression was indeed counterproductive, but only so long as the Panthers' message was in tune with popular sentiment. Other factors helped make that the case for a time, not least the unpopular Vietnam War, since the Panthers could link their own cause to that of the anti-war movement. But then the war wound down, and there were signs of marginal progress, like improved welfare programs and electoral success for some black politicians. In the early 70s, the Panthers' radical message fell on increasingly deaf ears. This weaker political position rendered them more vulnerable to government persecution. The Panthers also made tactical errors, one of which had to do with the electoral process. In 1972, they attempted to get Bobby Seale elected mayor of Oakland, while Elaine Brown ran for city council. Not only did they lose, but the focus placed on this campaign suggested that the party was going back to being a regional Californian concern. Brown would, however, continue to be an effective political operative, which illustrates another trend we see developing across the history of the Black Panthers. The party was initially very male-dominated, and it is still often seen as having been a rather macho and even misogynistic organization. As a matter of fact, though, women increasingly rose to positions of leadership in the party, in part because the leading men were all in jail. These included the aforementioned Elaine Brown and Kathleen Cleaver, who once wryly commented that no one ever asked what a man's place in the revolution is. The men in the movement also demonstrated significant shifts in their attitudes on the role of women. We've already mentioned that Newton recommended the open embrace not only of gay liberation, but also women's liberation. As he put it, we say that we recognize the women's right to be free. The largest journey, however, was taken by Cleaver, who frankly admitted in his book, Soul on Ice, to having raped women in his youth, something he justified to himself in political terms, convincing himself that sexual violence could be a revolutionary act. These passages were shocking and troubling at the time, and remain so today. But Cleaver would later go on to argue for the equality of women in the movement. 
He called for the Panthers to be the vanguard also in the area of women's liberation and said, the women are our half. They're not our weaker half. They're not our stronger half. They are our other half. And at least some women said that this was not just talk, especially once community outreach became central to the party's activities. One female Panther, Frankie Malka Adams, recalled, women ran the Black Panther Party pretty much. These things are looked on as being women's things, feeding children, taking care of the sick. We actually ran the party's programs. The party may have begun by putting guns in the hands of the brothers on the block, as Newton put it, but its legacy belongs no less to the sisters who volunteered to put food in the mouths of needy children. Relevant to our next episode is yet another example of an often overlooked contribution by a female panther, in this case, Linda Harrison's 1969 essay on cultural nationalism, which appeared in The Black Panther, the party's official newspaper. It is one of the most thoughtful articulations of another important theme in panther thought, the critical juxtaposition of their revolutionary nationalism with cultural nationalism, or as they sometimes derisively called it, pork chop nationalism. Headlining our next episode is the most influential representative of black cultural nationalism in 1960s America, Maulana Karenga, leader of the US organization and inventor of the holiday Kwanzaa. We hope you will tune in to learn more about, well, us on the next episode of The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm-hmm.